all the leaves are brown and the skies are grey. And we're back for season two of Somewhere to Believe in, the podcast brought to you by Greenbelt Festival. So, hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. And welcome to episode three. Yeah, welcome. And just to clarify, that's episode three, Total Landscaping. (laughs) More of that later. Hey, so the big difference I'm noticing, Catherine, I'm seeing you on screen and there's none of the usual duvet action going on all hung up around you. What's with that? You just look as if you're in a normal room. Yeah, after two or three months of doing this podcast, um, we've realised that none of that was necessary at all. So I used to have a half an hour setup of strategically hanging duvets and mattresses and uh, things all around my room. And none of that is necessary. You can just sit here and talk into this microphone. (laughs) All those months of researching which tog duvet, which angle of hanging and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. All out the window. All out the window. Oh, my word. Anyway, so we're into the first full week of lockdown. We've done one weekend of it. Catherine, I know you're a little bit anxious about it, but how's it going? It's going all right so far. I have started knitting for the first time in my life, taking on a creative project. And that's passing a lot of time and keeping me busy and giving me something creative to do. And I'm enjoying that. So what are you knitting? What's your first project? It's a jumper. I'm going full force in. Not to 100. Yeah. Straight into it. Because most people, I mean, I'm thinking of when I was a kid and my grandma taught me a bit of knitting. I tried a scarf first. Yeah, I thought with a scarf, there's, you know, there's an easy out there. I could get bored. Don't need a scarf. Jumper. I might wear that. So I'll probably carry on with it. Particularly if it's a Christmas jumper, I guess. Oh, that's that's step two. We're recording this about a week on from the US presidential elections and it feels like it almost took that whole week to reach some form of resolution whereby we could all breathe a sigh of relief. How has it been for you, Catherine? What's, what's it felt like? You know, I, I tried to stay up and watch the election as much as I could and then the next day I was following it with the news playing in the background for the whole day. Um, it feels like it's been a real slow burner. In some ways, it feels like those few days of waiting is actually a good thing because it's not, you know, it's not a win and then everything will be sorted. It's a win and it's progress and it's really a good thing. But there's still lots of work to do in a very divided country. You know, the reality of that election shows that that country is completely divided and there's a lot of pent up frustration. What do you think? I mean, you, you, you have family and relatives in America, don't you? I do which is an interesting experience when it comes to elections, particularly, and has been interesting over the last four years while Trump has been the president. Because as you say, yeah, you know, the country is divided and there are millions upon millions of people who are real avid Trump supporters and can't that won't go away overnight. But I, I guess for me, I guess I'm a dad and for my boys, they just they just look at me with complete disbelief that someone like Donald Trump can be president of the United States. They don't understand it uh, through a through a child's eyes or through a young person's eyes. I just don't think it makes sense to them that politics can be allowed to be that sort of divisive and nepotistic and yeah just corrupt and so for them they they feel like oh yeah sort of quote-unquote normal service is resumed in other words we've got um politics is now going to get a chance again but as you say there's a lot of work to do a lot of work what is it about the way that we're so fascinated with um the elections over there in the US. Are you have you been fascinated by it? I've been fascinated. I feel like it sets the tone, doesn't it, almost for the rest of the world. I think when, you know, one of the problems with having a president like Donald Trump is that it starts to set this trend for very toxic masculine kind of leaders. And hopefully this will start to set a new tone especially having a woman as vice president a black woman as vice president i'm hoping that it will get to set a new tone in a similar way you know obama had 
there was difficulties with Obama as president too, but like I think just his way of leading a nation, addressing a nation and 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 focusing on values, proper values that a nation should have and defending democracy. I think all that is it needs to be said again. It needs to be the tone needs to change across the world and America is a good country to do that. Yeah, and I'm reminded that right now, um, while we're putting this podcast out, there should have been a massive global conference in Glasgow here in the UK around climate change. It was going to be the big conference, COP26, to follow up from the Paris Climate Accords. And you know, one of the first things that Donald Trump did when he was president is he withdrew from all that. He withdrew America's commitment to or involvement in that whole process. And Joe Biden and... Uh, the Democrats are, you know, saying that they will rejoin that process and be part of that conversation again. And those sorts of things feels like, yeah, yeah, we need to work together on this stuff. Climate change and, you know, the, the global pandemic. Uh, again, the Trump administration withdrew their support for um, the World Health Organization, which, you know, has got its problems. It's not a perfect organization. But at a time like this, surely it needs countries to be working together to fight these things rather than be in isolation so those sorts of things i find really encouraging that we can perhaps i like i like your phrase of it sets a sets a different tone i think that's that's exactly right i'm very excited about um, kamala harris as the vice president i think she represents a real hope for the future uh, of that country and you know joe biden's old he's not a real progressive but he's a genuine guy he's a politician he's experienced and my hope is that he will he's a politician <laughs> <laughs> that's the important thing to to point out he's a politician, he, he is a politician. which is new <laughs> and he's really expert in foreign affairs as well which i think that um in all fairness to donald trump that wasn't a, one of his strong suits um no <laughs> And I hope that what they'll build is they'll build a really broad coalition of people in the Democratic Party to lead the party and to lead the nation that includes, um, as well as the moderates, it includes the people who have been more radical and progressive over, over recent years, particularly the new young women in the party who are rising to prominence and representing communities that have been uh, overlooked and ignored for so long. So I'm excited to see what happens. Can we just talk about the total landscaping? What do you think happened there, Paul? Because it's I think it's the it's one of the funniest things I've heard this week. Well, I think like you were saying, you couldn't have written that in a more satirical way. You know, the thick of it, Armando Inucci couldn't have imagined something as bizarre bonkers as a press conference which was largely led by real, real old has been white men standing in a car park between an adult sex shop <laughs> and what was on the other side? A crematorium. A crematorium in a car park in Philadelphia, you know, staging this really big, you know, this is going to be the start of our legal comeback. And it just looked like a bunch of really sad old blokes wearing ill-fitting suits. Um, and then surprised by the media outlets calling the election for Biden while they're actually standing there in the car park. I know it's an image that's going to live long in your mind, isn't it, Catherine? It's just so perfect. It just seemed like such a perfect ending to that whole thing. Do you think that it was as soon as Trump like lost, everybody that worked for him or in that kind of administration just like backed away from their computers and just left? <laughs> yeah, I think probably a lot of people did. Um, but just leaving the real diehard people... Um, like Rudy Giuliani and his cronies um, to go to a car park. And <laughs> uh, anyway, there's some priceless moments that we'll be left with from a visual point of view. Um, but as you say, a lot of healing to be done beyond the car park. Perhaps laughter will be part of the healing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, look, we, we need to put that image of the car park behind us, Catherine, and we need to focus up on our special guest for this week's podcast, who is Munira Pilgrim, who we spoke to. Um, and we had a, a wonderful conversation with her, didn't we? 
Yeah, she was great. I mean, she's she's been to the festival now twice before. Um, she's a brilliant poet, activist, workshop leader. She was once in a band, like a hip-hop band, and they performed at Greenbelt. Yeah, incredible woman. She was just so joyful and infectious and full of life when we spoke to her. And um, yeah, we hope that you really, really enjoy the conversation as much as, as we did. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Where, where are you speaking to us from today, Munira? I'm in Bristol. And is that where you live now, live full time? Yeah, that's where I live full time. It's interesting because it's slowly becoming my city. I was born and raised in Bristol, but I left um, just over under, 10, um, under 20 years ago, actually. And then I moved to London and then I went to York, lived in Sudan for a year. So coming back, Bristol... It's slowly starting to feel like home and I'm sort of forging my way. So it's a good time to be in Bristol as well. It feels like there's a lot to challenge, a lot to stand up for and to articulate. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a Bristolian. I never said that. I'm a Bristolian. I'm a Bristolian. <laughs> Yeah, Bristol's been a bit crazy over the summer in a really, really good way, hasn't it? Yeah. Were you there for that? Yes, I was. Didn't expect it. I don't think anyone really expected it, apart from the people who bought the ropes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, I was at the march and I was actually there as it went down. It's so funny because I heard this cry and I didn't realise what it was initially. Like, people were just cheering. I was like, OK, maybe they're happy. I'll cheer too. I didn't know why people were cheering. And then this... Um, man like this Jamaican man who had this sort of like trolley with like a big speakers and reggae music pumping out of it started walking through the crowd and I was like oh let me follow him I don't know why let me just follow him because he sort of cleared the path and as I got to where he was I could see people just standing around and looking at something and I didn't know what it was people were taking pictures so I asked a woman if she could take my camera and take a picture and she did and when she gave it back to me and it was the image of the statue of Colson, I was like, what? You know, it was really quite shocking because I guess for myself as a child, walking through the streets of Bristol, you know, and that particular area where the statue was, for me, I never went beyond that point. It wasn't something consciously, but there was something that said about the city that, oh, you're in a different part of the city now. And it didn't feel welcoming to me as a child. And then, so to actually see it down on the ground and to be able to understand what it means, you know, not like when I was a child and I was like, what is this? Why do I feel uncomfortable about this? It was really emotional and I can't deny it was cathartic, you know? Because in in your um, in your TED poem, uh, the, the the unicorns poem that did so well uh, on the internet, which is fantastic, you talk about that sort of that growing up experience in Bristol and your identity there, and about the the fact that beneath your feet are all the stories of this slaving past. Mm. And um, you recorded that way before Colston was was toppled, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know. Bristol is this really complicated place. It is on one hand this place of arts, of creativity, of so much, you know. And I guess in many ways some people say that like it's under deep um, tension and under pressure that you get so many good things, so many amazing things, you know. Definitely culturally I would say Bristol has really contributed to the UK, you know, whether it be through his art scene, through his music scene, through the culture, through the, you know, people come to Bristol because they want to be a part of that. And um, Bristol has contributed so much, but at the same time, at different points in Bristol's history, even now, there are so many things which have happened, which we haven't had a, a conversation about, you know, stemming from slavery, but also like just, again, as you mentioned in my poem, I talk about my childhood growing up and the segregation, you know, it's like on one hand, you have Bristol, the city, which has, you know, three of the most trendiest neighbourhoods in it. And then on the other hand, you have Bristol, which is the most um, segregated core city in the country, you know, how do we reconcile these, these different things? And I guess a lot of the good comes at a cost. I feel like at this moment where Bristol is with all of the spotlight, all of the attention, all of the history, everything that has happened, it, it almost feels dangerous, but not in a negative way insofar as sometimes we need these challenging, dangerous ideas. And that's when opportunity 
is realised. And that's why I feel glad to be in, in Bristol at this moment in time. That's that's kind of something that's been echoed when we've talked to a lot of artists from different parts of the world about how, um, you know, this pandemic has been really hard for everybody, but it's also brought up opportunities, opportunities for people to stop and to listen to other people, to see what's going on and to act as well. So No, definitely. I, I, I would agree with that. I would say that I do definitely think I think at the beginning of the pandemic, um, people were sort of calling it like this great leveller, you know, this thing that we can all, um, you know, we're all going for it. But as it started to develop, we realised that actually some people are going through it more than others, you know, and all of these things, all of these little potholes in society globally that no one was really sort of thinking about or you know like with potholes you know the local authority comes in and they try to cover it up and then it rains it's like oh there's a pothole again um it seems like they were not it seems clearly there has been neglect you know to many people but I think it's just so glaring right now that we just have to talk about it and for those people who don't want to talk about it I think it's really interesting actually because I think there's a lot of people who aren't like hateful people or who aren't like you know course you have people who are like just comfortable with their I don't like using this term because I think it's overused and I don't think we actually define what we mean when we say this but when we talk about privilege it's like we all have some form of well certainly in the west I would say most of us have some form of privilege in some way shape or form but it's like we don't interrogate our privilege I guess you know and privilege isn't this I guess sometimes when we talk about privilege it's, it's used it's sort of weaponized but it's like Yes, there is a problem. There is something problematic about privilege, which isn't recognised, acknowledged, and, you know, you aren't in gratitude for that. But actually, I like the idea of people being able to use their privilege to help people, you know. We need to find new models, and I think this pandemic is giving us the opportunity to think about new models, to reimagine, you know. I said this the other day in a talk. I think what was required of us before was for us to be brave. And many of us are at the point of being brave now. But actually, in this era, I don't think brave is enough. In this era, I think we need to be radical because, you know, being brave is only going to take us so far. But so much has happened and we've been exposed to it at such a short space of time. We need to just radically reimagine. Uh, it makes me think of the way that you, you describe yourself as a storyteller, perhaps first and foremost. I know that, you, you know, we think of you at Greenbelt as a poet, as a... Uh, a workshop leader, facilitator, you know, theatre maker. There's all sorts of things that you do in your artistic life, but you say storyteller is what I am deep down. Um, is that because you've, uh, in your in your growing up and in the way that you were formed as a human and, and are being formed, you, you've always tried to resist stories being imposed on you and, and it, you want to find what is your own truthful story? And what's can you say a little bit about that? Because I'm really interested when you speak about that. I didn't realise this before until very recently. And it was recently that I started using the whole idea of storyteller. But you mentioned a word, Paul, and you said resistance. And if I'm to look at my whole life, even as a child, I did resist narratives and notions of what people tried to place on me. A lot of the questioning of myself as a young girl was, why do people see me in this way? Why am I supposed to dress a particular way? Why am I supposed to talk a certain way, look a certain way? Why do I have to be in this space? And as I had all these questionings, you know, had these this opportunity to be able to question myself in this way, and I started practicing arts and practicing creativity, I tried to bring that out in other people as well and then just realizing through traveling more through um doing more work through you know collaborating with people like yourselves you know i start to realize oh wait there's the all of these stories that we just don't hear and so i like to tell my story i like to encourage people to tell their story i like to tell other people's story i just believe there's so many stories that are rare that we never hear or even when we hear the popular stories, there's a strand in there that is rare that we don't hear. And so I'm interested in these rare stories and what does it mean to center these stories? Or even people talk about the margins, you know, and they say, oh, you know, people are marginalized. And yeah, people are marginalized. But actually, I think 
for myself being on the intersection of so many identities and we're all on the intersection of identities but being on the intersection of so many visible identities shall I say like it allows me a certain view which I wouldn't if I wouldn't have if I was like if I wasn't if I didn't have so many visible identities right and this this view just allows me to see in a different way and and see from a different view and just see all of these stories and I'm really invested in stories and human beings so yeah that's why I'm a storyteller. You were just talking then about how at a young age you were questioning these stories that people told you about yourself. I think I've only started questioning those stories like in my late 20s, 30s. Mm -hmm. Like who... How did you, what were you shown at a young age? Who was, who was leading the way for you? What were you reading? What were you experiencing to make you so kind of wise and out of the box kind Whoa. of thinking? <laughs> You're very, very, very kind. I don't know if I'm wise. My mum would say you just like to talk a lot. <laughs> I think it's probably just talking to myself. <laughs> no one listening to me. So I'm like, okay, let me talk to myself. No. Um, so first of all, I think... I don't really know. I mean, I am lucky to grow up in a community that was filled with people of my culture, right? I was born in Bristol. Bristol has or had a really strong Jamaican community. Most of my mum's siblings were in the in, in, in the country and in the city. So I had the opportunity to go to their houses to, you know, from a really young age, I was really interested in photographs and just like hearing about people in my family. Who's that? What did you do? What did they do? Like, why are we here? How did we get here? You know, where am I from? All of these different things. So I think um, ha being having such a big family, it allowed me to have conversations with so many different people. So I think that's definitely something. Um, as I, you know, um, got older and my, I guess, I started to see people other than my family, like through school and things like this. I think really the thing that made me um, really interrogate and question is my difference. So in school, I was... I was this girl who, A, I learned very differently. I didn't know until um, when I went to, um, until I went to university that I was dyslexic, right? I've only found out now, do my second MA, that I'm dyspraxic, I got ADHD, because, you know, when trying to get some money to get some help to get some materials, you have to do, go to educational psychologists. And like, it really was an eye opener for me. I mean, particularly with dyslexia first of all when I got that diagnosis I was like oh wow it felt like someone was reading my life you know because it explained the reason why I understood differently why it took me longer to get to particular conclusions why I would get to conclusions but not in the pathway that I was supposed to get there so I was always having this sort of like roundabout thinking whereas most people will be able to just go one, two, three, I'd be like 110, 17, 18, two, you know. And I think having to take that time to go the long way around really helped me help me to think about things more. But also in school, I was I wasn't I think every child to an extent was bullied in some way. I wouldn't say I was bullied, but I was definitely different. And that was pointed out at numerous times. And so as a result of that, and as a result of being a kid who was like big you know like I was a woman of uh, what well, I, I cast myself as a woman of size I was always quite a you know chubby kid and so I realized that when I cultivated relationships or when I spoke to people I was interested in what they had to say I was interested in who they are and not what we were supposed to be because I was never in the in click I was never in with the in crew I always had to create that and so I think that has allowed me to just have a real interest in what people have to say and how people think as opposed to who people are, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, when was it you first discovered this artistry, this creative form of expression that has been so much a part of who you are in your life? Yeah. So as I said, like, you know, I was dyslexic. So at a particular point in time, I was an amazing reader. It was difficult for me to read, but I think it was more because of my interest in books. And then as, I guess, words got smaller, you know, as you grow up and, you know, tighter, um, the font was tighter and closer together, I struggled. And so um, I kind of 
I guess I gave up reading in many ways. I had to read, of course, but I wouldn't read for myself. But I, I really loved writing stories, you know. And so I would always write stories. And I remember, like, we was given an essay um, to do in, 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 in English. And it was supposed to be just two sheets of A4. But I wrote something like 12 sheets of A4. And it was this really tragic story. I don't even remember what it was about. But my English teacher was like, this is really good. But a little bit disturbing at the same time, you know. But I just remember having this love of, like, um, writing. Um, although my handwriting was messy, although I knew there was mistakes in spelling, grammar, all of these various different things. And then, so that happened, and I used to write poetry, but I didn't think of it of poetry. I didn't think of it as, I'm writing a story. It was more like I'm fulfilling this criteria of my class. And then um, uh, incident which happened in Bristol, um, a young man by the name of Marlon Thomas, he was at a fairground in Bristol um, and he went there. He's a young black African Caribbean boy. He went there with his um, white girlfriend. And so there was a fair in town and this fair didn't like the idea of someone black and someone white being together. And so, like, many young people were at this um, event and then they started attacking the girl, calling her all sorts of names. And then so he started, you know, retorting or what have you. And then the fight um, broke out, essentially. The difference is that, you know, you had all of these fairground workers and they had, like... They, they, they had been putting up the fair, of course, so they had metal bars, they had crowbars, they had all of these weapons. And Marlon, you know, was attacked severely and his friends were attacked severely. And he almost lost his life. In fact, he died but was resuscitated. And his life has never been the same. He, is, he's, he cannot look after himself, cannot feed himself. This is years and years ago. But that was our sort of like Stephen Lawrence. That was our Rodney King, you know? Um, that really changed my perspective because I remember thinking racism was just name calling, you know? Up until that point, racism was name calling. I was like, yeah, I don't mind racists. They can call me whatever they want. But this was really physical and it was really difficult for me to be able to deal with and so I remember going in school this is bearing in mind this is the 90s I remember going into school and so many of us were devastated by this because as I said Bristol was a tight-knit community we knew each other and so we were devastated by this we were confused trying to understand why did this happen and so for the first week we were allowed given the space to talk about it but it was traumatic for many of us right and so we wanted to continue talking about it. we wanted to we were doing little bits of activism in terms of raising money in school you know and then I think after the first week the teachers the school body they just didn't have the I guess the cultural capacity the um therapeutic capacity to be able to hold us and so Instead of saying, okay, well, I guess no one in those days said, okay, we'll bring a well-being practitioner in. They were just like, you're just not allowed to speak about it anymore. And so I not having not being able to speak, I needed to express. And the first thing that came out was a poem. And like I read, I wrote this poem. Someone I shared it with a friend, they shared it with someone else. And then I think I read it on radio and read it. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a poem. And this has the ability to you know, it's, it's enabled me to express my emotions and also to touch the emotions of other people. They feel it, they felt it, not just like, you know, oh, this is really sad to hear, but they felt it. And I think that's when I was like, oh, I, I, this is something. I didn't know it was, I didn't know I was, I wouldn't call myself a poet, but I was like, this is an art form that I can cultivate. This is something to cultivate. I'm really interested in your journey from that early Jamaican heritage culture where I'm assuming that Christianity was such an important part of that that vibe and that upbringing and then your journey towards discovering um, people who came in from the left field who you didn't know about who suddenly made an impact philosophically on you like Malcolm X and, and others. It's interesting that you mention Malcolm X because um, being born in Bristol, we have, and being part of the black community in Bristol, um, particularly black Caribbean community, we have a community centre called the Malcolm X Centre. So 
even before I knew about the life of Malcolm X, Malcolm X was really prevalent. His face was in my, I remember his face from as far back as I can remember. Christenings, weddings, funerals, birthday parties, youth clubs, all sorts of talent shows took place in this centre. So like, I was always... I always had this idea of this man who's who is a strong character who black people should look up to. I, that's what I just knew about him. Um, I love, first of all, Christianity, particularly through the expression of Jamaican people. I am in love with it. I have written about it extensively. And I think it's really beautiful. I think it's really beautiful to see how this form of Christianity has embodied so much of people, like through the song, through the stories, through whatever it is, I think is really beautiful. And I was raised in this. But a critique that I, ha I have, and maybe it existed in Islam, maybe it existed in Judaism and all of these different philosophies, because I think things have changed now, but a critique that I have or had was that at that time, they didn't have the capacity to be able to have conversations about race. So growing up in the face of realising, oh, there's racism. What is this? And then going back and speaking to people, what is racism? Why does racism happen? Why, why do we have these images of God, you know, or of Jesus, shall I say, sorry? Why do we have this Im image of Jesus and like his blonde hair, blue eyed? Did he really look like this? You know, like trying to understand these concepts but no one wanted to, 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 to have conversations about it. And being shut down, I was like, well, this clearly isn't the space for me. And also just witnessing, and you have this in, you have this in every religion, but I guess when you're younger, you're a bit more idealistic, right? Just witnessing hypocrisy or witnessing, you know, um, people being very judgmental, like someone may come into the church and because they're not dressed a particular way or they don't sound a particular way, you know? So I think at about the age of about, 15 I was like nah I need to think about other forms of spirituality spent a long time asking myself what is the meaning of life why am I here what is the purpose and I guess for a while I got um faith or faith confused with um sort of like philosophy or idea ideology so I I, I it was very much not separated from my culture and I think it's important to have cultural expressions of faith, but at the same time, I realised that they're different things. And so as I was looking for my blackness, I was looking for something to reflect that. And Christianity wasn't doing that at that time. Um, so I went through several different, you know, sort of phases of spiritual expressions. Um, and I even came back full circle after going through all of these different things. And I started looking at the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, you know, and I uh, attended um, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, even though by this time I was now in London. And um, it was really, really beautiful. But I guess because of my experience, when people mentioned getting baptised, that really sort of like freaked me out a bit. And then um, I started to, but I really identified with the covering of the hair because my grandma, um, she's Christian and like no one, no male outside of her family has seen her hair, you know? And I was just, there's something that really, I don't know. I just, I, I just thought that fascinating, you know? What is it in like, in many sort of like Afrocentric sort of circles, the idea of your hair being like, um, this thing like a form of protection how do you protect yourself how do you protect yourself from negative energies and things like this I was really interested in that at that time and so when Islam sort of came along I wasn't expecting it because again being young I had these ideas like oh Islam is for um, South Asian people and for um, Arab people that's not a religion for me and because in Bristol there were these tensions um I didn't relate to it. So I started researching about it just to someone close to me converted. And I was like, no, let me try and put them off. And then I really fell in love with it. And that's how I got into Islam. And I think it was, again, re a rereading of the story of Malcolm X, you know, um, a rereading of the stories of many characters, you know, that made me think, oh, actually, this feels comfortable. This feels like home. But I guess then obviously you convert and then you realise, oh, there's hypocrisy here too, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's, I guess a lot of it is about just growing up and accepting it and realising that people are people wherever they are. What was it that you um, found in Islam that you first fell in love with? 
I think, I mean, at the time when I um, converted to Islam, I was, I had, first of all, I always um, believed that there was only one God, do you get what I'm saying? And then I believed also in the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, because I was a part of this sort of, um, I don't know how you describe it, I was a part of this organisation and they had sort of like spiritual elements, they took different pieces of different sort of religious ideologies. But in because I was a part of that, I believe that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was like um, the final messenger. I, was, I, I had set up a charity um, at that time, I had a charity called Rebel Music, which was about providing um, education through music to young people, even though I was young myself, you know, and I really loved fasting I loved fasting like I don't know my mom instilled in me from a really young age the idea of faith and fasting that there's a connection and so as I was researching about Islam I think one of the first things that struck me was like oh wait <laughs> I uh I am practicing all of the pillars apart from going on um going on um pilgrimage right but at that time Myself and my friend has set up a group called Poetic Pilgrimage. This is before we were Muslims and we was like, life is a sacred pilgrimage, you know. We're trying to travel to, like, find God. You will go to any nook or cranny to seek out God and God's message. And so it, it struck me that I was essentially practicing the five pillars of Islam. And so when I first initially started to research Islam, it was to try and put one of my friends off Islam, right? And I know that sounds really bad in saying it now, but um, and the two things that I had issue with was women's rights within Islam and also, um, I guess, um, race in Islam. I didn't see it as something for myself. But then in doing that research and then finding out about, I don't want to say women's rights, but just the position that women had and just how much of a liberation tool Islam was for women in that time, right? And also just like finding out that there was this whole sort of like intelligentsia of like Muslim scholars that came from West Africa. This was very exciting to me, you know, and just the way how people practice in different ways, you know, it made me realise that actually I didn't have to be a Pakistani person to be able to be a Muslim and I could still be me. And it just felt like this, you know... I guess we use terms like religion because that's what's given to us, right? But like when in speaking to people, would they necessarily call themselves, oh, I'm a part of a religion or would they simply say way of life? And I just really loved the way how Islam seemed to convey itself as a way of life, you know? And so again, rosy-eyed, idealistic, I converted to Islam and I'm glad that I'm a Muslim, but again, realizing that people are people, you know, and you have good and bad everywhere, but the core tenets or the core sort of lens of Islam really just, it married with just my outlook on life. And I was like, okay, this is a, this is a place for me. And how did that, did that affect in any way or change or shape your, your poetry and your artistry? How did that, did that sort of conversion and that, that faith journey, did that express itself through your, your work? It's so interesting to think about that. At that time, I think, I, I mean, back then and maybe a few years after that, if you had asked me that question, I would probably say no, because I was always on this seeking, this like looking for... And I hate the idea... Well, OK, the sacred, I would say. But I, I, I don't like the idea that oftentimes the sacred is um, disconnected from humanity or from our human selves. It's like, oh, you know, the sacred or like spirituality is here. And then you have like humanness here and we're striving to be up here because the way how I see it is that like we have hands, we have a mouth, we have a nose, we have a heart. And through these physical things, this is how we feel feel you know and this is what's so remarkable about being a human being is like we fall in love you know sometimes I taste food I'm like oh my gosh god you gave me taste buds thank you so much you know like but just imagine not having taste buds you know just imagine not being grateful you know sometimes when you're really thirsty like it's a hot day you're really thirsty and you drink water and you're like god is real <laughs> 
you know what I mean? Like, if I didn't have that experience, for me, these are spiritual moments. These are spiritual experiences. But, like, I think... Yeah, so my point is, is that I'm really interested in um, the the humanness and the, and the sacredness being one. But in terms of did that change me, it's hard to know whether Islam has changed me or whether I've just grown up with Islam. Because my ideas have changed, my thoughts have changed, you know. But I don't know if that is ageing or if that is Islam. I'm definitely connected and I'm definitely um, see... Not saying that Islam is... I definitely had a more dogmatic perception of Islam when I was younger. And so now I think that whole, even though I had that humanist outlook, I think the practicalities and like the cultivating that is definitely prevalent in my art more today than it was before. So you've been to uh, Greenbelt now a couple of times. What was it for you walking into a space like Greenbelt, which kind of marries this um, faith and activism and artistry? The first time I went to Greenbelt, it was just in and out. So it was like zoom in, zoom out. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this event um, and then going to go. And as I walked in, I knew that was the wrong decision. I knew I had set my day up wrong. I knew that I wanted to be in that space. And I thought to myself, this is such a shame. These people have invited me here and I'm gonna go and I'm not gonna experience all of this. Um, But being there in that very short time, I was like, okay, I I, I definitely feel this. More recently when I went, um, my friend, Asia, she used to work for um Christian Aid, and so I said to her, oh, "I'm gonna be um at Greenbelt." She's like, "Ah, oh, you have to stay in a tent." <laughs> I was like, "They also have options for like hotels." She's like, "No, no, 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 no! You have to stay in a tent." And I was like, "Okay." And then I realized how much because she had been Greenbelt before, and so I was like, "Okay, you can come with me." And so, um. We, we actually glamped in the end and she was really disappointed. She was like, I want to put on my own tent, you know? But like, yeah. I was like, no, 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 this is what we can do. We could glamp, but we're not going to put up our own tent. But just being there and again, witnessing how people could be at ease there, you know? Witnessing people, it almost felt like people were in this space where they were allowed to be themselves, where they were allowed to just relax. I feel like in society... Sometimes we are faced with so many perceptions of us and perceptions of who we are and, you know, but it felt like in that space, people were open and, you know, authentically themselves and authentically loving. And like, I know sometimes I have conversations with people and I don't think that there's a negative a negative um, per- perception or, or intention on the part of the other person but I am aware that I'm in this society I know perceived in a particular way I have to be a particular way but it felt like there was a sense of freedom there right and again all of these conversations and it felt really lovely to just have this idea of activism being so centered in faith because again, sometimes activism, sometimes, you know, caring or connection with human beings, it seems like something that is outside of faith, you know? It's like faith is between you and your Lord, but to see it between the community, you know, and and it be a tenant of what that community is about, it was really, really nice. And my friend was so disappointed when, because she was like, okay, because it's her birthday weekend as well. Greenbelt falls on her birthday weekend. And so she was so excited. She's like, have they invited you back to Greenbelt? I was like, yes. And then when, when lockdown happened, she was like, oh, no, 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 it'll be okay. It'll be ready by then. It'll be all right. And I was like, no, 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 no. I think it's not going to happen. Then I got the email and obviously we're in the state that we are in this country at the moment. So there we go. And that second time that you came, Munira, and you were with us for the whole weekend, we loved having you there. And we know that people love participating in the various workshops and readings that you ran. And a lot of your work was centred around your Othello responses that you Mm. had developed. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, because, you know, most of us who've grown up here in the UK and have been to school and studied English, we sort of think we know who Othello is. At least we perhaps know that he's one of Shakespeare's tragedies, um, yeah. but that's about it. Um, but what was it about that play, that character, that person that opened, you know, what, what, you know, how did you respond to, the, to that story? Because was it, was it one that you'd grown up with or that you came to later as an adult? I 
was familiar with Shakespeare and had done some plays, not a fellow, um, but I didn't really connect with Shakespeare. And I think because the way how we were introduced was through such an academic means. It was so, okay, so what does this character mean? What does that character mean? And there was only one answer. There wasn't really room for reasoning. And so for that reason, I, I never really connected with Shakespeare. And so when I was asked by English Touring Theatre, Richmond Twyman, and they asked me to do a, a response, so I went to see it and I was like, oh, this is really different. This is really interesting, actually, because there's so many different ideas and meanings that could be got from the same play. This is not like school. This isn't, a, oh, yes, this is right. That is wrong. This is really interpretations coming together. So um, in Richard's um, idea of Othello, he's very specific that, yes, Othello was a more. But when we say more, what does that mean? Like in that, in that term, in that day, in that time, by saying a fellow was a Moor, that meant probably, if he was real, that he was a black man who was probably from West Africa, right? So this black character from West Africa coming into a society where he's looked down upon, even though he's respected in some way, shape or form, he's still mocked, he's still looked down upon. What does this do? What does this do to his sense of self, his sense of masculinity? And really, instead of painting him as this sort of monster, he is painted as this person who is sort of turned, this person who is sort of like, who unravels throughout the process of what he's experiencing. It was essentially looking at this play and thinking, what does it say about the society in which we're living in today, right? And how again, are narratives much more complicated than what we think they are. In the society where we have people coming in from um, on, on rafts, on, on makeshift boats from West Africa, from, from other parts of the world, what does it mean to be, to belong? What is belonging, you know? And I really like that perspective. And so I was, a lot of the work that I was doing at Greenbelt that year was just really responding to that or thinking about that. And if not thinking specifically about a fellow, but thinking about belonging. It seems like there's, there's a connection with how, um, cause you, you did a lot of workshops around a fellow, didn't you? With people, mm -hmm. um, and getting them to explore these stories and maybe creatively respond to these stories. And it seems like that's what helped you when you were growing up, find your identity and your voice. Do you think that's what's led you on to helping others kind of go in that artistic route? Absolutely. Definitely. I think so. Um, I'm very much of the premise that like, even if you are not an artist yourself, we are all connected to arts, right? We are all artists in a way in a right in many ways we can say that god is an artist um I'm not trying to um, my mom may be very upset with me if she heard me say it like that but like if we think about the beauty and the creation like this is something that is to be witnessed by people in the quran um or in in in, in islam we have this um idea that like god wanted to be known right and in wanting to be known God created, right, this beauty. And so we are witnessing all of this beauty coming out from God. And so, you know, like for people in the day to day, oftentimes we're disconnected from arts. Oftentimes arts is felt as something that is um, extra, you know, you've got life, then you've got that additional thing. And if you have wealth, if you have time, if you have, you know, then you have this this thing that you could experience. But actually, if we all had the ability to, to create, if we all had artistic tendencies, our artistic tendencies cultivated, how would that help us? How would that even help us in business, right? If we were allowed to explore ourselves and be artistic in the way that we think about business, in the way that we think about, like, you know, society generally, what could we produce, you know? At the moment, we're living in the era of capitalism, right? And um, we think that this is the way. But if we had a more creative vision, if we were allowed to reimagine and to 
you know, vision something wildly beautiful, what would that society look like? And so this is something that everybody should have access to. This is something that we all have access to, but it's cut off. So many people want to be connected to arts, generally speaking, but it's like, oh no, I'm not an artist. Oh no, I'm not creative. Oh no, I can't do this. And it is just about reigniting that. And also through that, showing people that their stories are valuable. What they have to say is valuable we all have something valuable to say and something valuable and beautiful to offer it feels like art for me has always been like a really important thing to have in my life like Mm. I wouldn't be able to have a full and enjoyable life if I didn't have it and I've had moments where I've not been able to have it or been working too hard or you know that kind of thing what do you think would be lost then if uh arts institutions grassroots venues artists all that was lost first of all if arts is given a given the opportunity it will provide opportunities right but i think actually if the government doesn't invest in the arts and doesn't see the power and the potential of the arts hope will be lost I think hope will be um will be lost, a sense of belonging will be lost. And in fact, I think they would have to do a U-turn at some point. Um, well being will be lost. We've seen throughout this pandemic how people have come together on Zoom, how people have expressed themselves in their local communities, how people have really tried to find ways to express what they're feeling, right? And to express what they're going through. So if the government as a, we would be fundamentally different as human beings, I, I believe. There will be a core part of us lost. There will be a deep void that is not fillable by anything else, you know? Um, yes, money is important. Yes, um, health is important. But actually, when people are really trying to convey something, when people are really trying to connect with something, people often go to arts to do that something fundamentally about us as human beings will be lost because we we are inclined to beauty we are inclined to want to connect we are inclined to want to see beautiful things and to have hope and this is something that cultivates hope inside us as human beings and and are you a hopeful person Manira? how do you feel about the future um do you how do you maintain um, I mean, I'm assuming that you are hopeful, but how do you maintain hope in the face of everything that crowds in on you? And, um, you know, particularly as an artist and as an activist, how do you keep going? How do you keep going burning bright without burning out? I think for myself, I, there is an element which I'm very aware of. I need to look after myself more. I'm not looking after myself as well as I could be. In fact, I'm not, I don't have a healthy model, but I'm aware of this. And I think to have an awareness of that, first of all, is, is very important. So I go through phases of work, 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 work. I don't mean work as in or, or being, 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 being still. Being, 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 being still. And that's not still because I'm like, okay, I'm going to have a break now. That's being still because something happens right that's being still because like actually I didn't look after myself and I just crashed out and so this isn't a healthy model and this is something that I'm thinking about a lot um but in terms of what keeps me going I think it is like these moments of like having people close to me and like realizing that there are people whose story haven't been told there is still work to do There is still beauty to be looked at. There is still stories to tell. And I think this this keeps me going. I've struggled with my well-being, my mental health and different aspects of that since I was a teen, right? And at different points, I've coped with it in different ways. I am getting better at coping with it. But I realise that there is this, there's a necessity to just be well it is being well is actually a job in itself it is just realizing that there's work to be done and actually I benefit not in a arrogant way but those around me benefit and the young people particularly who are struggling they benefit from me being well so it makes sense for me to be well slightly joking apart the government is encouraging artists to think about retraining and doing something else you know (laughs) 
What would <laughs> can you imagine that? I mean, what what would you do, Manira? I would become an anarchist. <laughs> 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 Artist or anarchist, you choose, you know. <laughs> They're very similar. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time for coming and speaking to us. This has been amazing. I have no idea how we're going to edit that down. But we can't wait to see you next year at the festival if we manage to get you there and if everything's OK. Please have the mac and cheese man there again. <laughs> I think he's there every year, isn't he? That mac and cheese man. I always hear people talking about that. Awesome. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so much. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you for allowing me to think and allowing me to talk. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That was wonderful. Yeah, so there's so much in there. You know, we talked a little bit about Tamira about the the statue coming down, the Edward Colston statue this summer in Bristol, and it just re-reminded me how big that moment was. I really loved it when Manira said, you know, no one was really expecting it. Well, apart from the people who brought the ropes. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that Lee, I don't know if you remember, I, I'm sure that Lee said something similar. He said, you know, everyone gathered and no one quite knew what was happening, but there were some people there with tow trucks and chains. <laughs> Manira talks about the fact that she just never used to go past that statue and it wasn't a conscious decision. It was almost like that area is not for me, I think she said. And I was trying to think about how... I would feel if there was a statue in my town or in several towns around the country that I was born in, which was memorialising men who maybe were known for terrible treatment of women, how that would make me feel and how big that would be when people bring that down. It's massive. It's just yeah. a shame that it had to be brought down by protesters and not, you know, any people in official positions of power that just went you know what it's time for a change soz when i was younger i i grew up and bristol was my nearest city so if i wanted to go to a gig i would often go to the colston hall and i'd just go there you know that was just a venue with a title didn't that language didn't mean anything to me i didn't know anything about who colston was and yet you know like manira was saying for her and her friends and her community it's like a shadow that hung over the city and I, I like the way that she said that as a child she had the feeling but now as an adult seeing that statue come down she consciously knows what that means and the importance of it and that must feel that must feel so empowering and and liberating for her and and so many others all around the world uh, this movement that we've seen I mean, it was pretty astonishing what she was when she talked about the Marlon Thomas incident, an incident that I have never heard before. I don't know whether it's something you've ever heard before, Paul. No, it isn't. And I've got a family who live in Bristol and, you know, we visit them Christmas, Easter and all that sort of stuff. And I'd never heard that story. So the story in, in kind of a bit more detail is that there was this 18-year-old black kid that went to a fair that had come into town in Bristol and the... People, the I don't know what you would call them, people that work there, some of the young men that work there, about 20 of them apparently, picked up baseball bats, spanners, different tools and attacked, went on the hunt really for black kids that were at the fair and ended up beating them. Um, I think five were hospitalised, a lot more were injured and this uh, man, Marlon Thomas, he was... Well, he was killed for a moment. He was resuscitated on site, but he was beaten so badly that actually he stopped breathing. His life, pretty much, even though he's still alive, quote unquote, his, his life was ended in a sense 25 years ago by that from that act of brutality that night. Even after that terrible incident, what followed seems to also be really unfair. So out of the 20 people that committed these crimes, and they were racially motivated crimes, people know this because of what they were shouting, um, only four or five people were prosecuted and their sentences ranged from two to five years. 
Marlon Thomas actually was in hospital for four years, didn't come out of hospital for four years because there was no suitable place for him to move into. He needed suitable accommodation, of which there wasn't any. Yeah, and I think it was only after 21 years that the family managed to get compensation, financial compensation, to be able to give Marlon Thomas the kind of care that he needed, which was 24-hour round-the-clock care. 21 years it took for them to get that compensation. And Manira described it as... um... Bristol's or her Stephen Lawrence and in a way it was happening not all that long after the Stephen Lawrence uh, murder and I was struck as well that it was one of the ways that she found her voice as a poet she found a way to express the the real sorrow and anxiety that she was feeling through poetry and her friends found some comfort in reading those poets poems that Manira wrote What do you think of Shakespeare, Paul? Have you is Shakespeare something that you love? I do. Yes, I do love Shakespeare. Yeah. How about you? I never got it. I, I mean, one, it was forced on me at a young age. Two, I just never felt a connection to it. It wasn't. It literally wasn't speaking my language, and it seemed to be held up on such a pedestal that I don't know. I just didn't didn't like it. I mean, he he grew up down the road from me, Stratford. <laughs> He did, didn't he? He's a neighbour. <laughs> He's practically a neighbour. And uh, I love the stories. I think his stories are really, really clever. But I hate, I hated that they, to engage with those stories, you had to have a certain level of intellectual education to understand them, the way that they're presented. I never got it. I'd find it really difficult to explain why I loved it, Shakespeare, and still do without sounding like a real sort of arrogant academic knob. Um, yeah, I don't think you can. I think that's the thing. <laughs> but I do. I, 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 love, I love Shakespeare. Lots of people can cite particular Shakespeare plays that they've been to see, that, have been, that they've loved, that have been brilliant. Uh, I can too, but I also love just reading the text on the page. Uh, the language I find absolutely intoxicating. The stories, the language... I just think they they are absolutely unequaled. Um, there's so much truth in there, but I am in the minority. <laughs> You're actually probably not in the mini- minority. <laughs> I mean, he's quite famous. He did quite well, so he must have had <laughs> must have had a few people reading his books. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of similarities in Shakespeare and church scripture. Because it's how I feel the same about both of them, which in some ways I find... I mean, I remember when we the staff team went to um, the Franciscan Friary and we went into a mass that was being held then. It reminded me very much of the kind of masses I would have in my Catholic upbringing, which was a lot of kind of call and response um, stuff and, and a lot of... Um, readings and scripture that I couldn't engage with because the language was like a barrier for me. I couldn't just sit back and take in what was being told to me. And that's the way that I really like to learn. That's why I find a lot of joy in like music and rock and roll and theatre is because I can just sit back and I can engage with it on a instinctual level rather than trying to intellectualise everything. When I have to intellectualise things... It puts a barrier for me, I think. Everyone's different, aren't they? But for me, they come at me as poetry. So i that's the main... They feel like poetry. So they feel like a heightened form of language, which, although a little bit unusual and not every day, actually help me experience myself and the world more deeply because be, precisely because they are a little bit unusual and strange. To feel like a crossword puzzle for me. And so you're like, if I get it and I get it to the other side, I'm like, yay, I got it, I won. I don't know. Finding meaning, I guess, shouldn't be that sort of like over-intellectualized struggle that only a few people have access to. That's what's really, I guess, dangerous about or You know, whether it's, like you say, whether it's Shakespeare or religious traditions, if language is being used to lock people out... And just saying, oh, sorry, only if you've got certain priestly qualifications can you know what this really means. (laughs) 
then I'm not into that. I'm not into that. You know, Minerva really talks about at the end there about how important the arts are for people. I think she she words it really well. She talks about them bringing a sense of hope, a sense of well-being, giving people identity, allowing people to belong to things. And I think all of those are true. It kind of, you know, there's a quote going around around this summer about how arts are what gives people reason to live. You know, we need money. We need that kind of stuff. But We also need a reason to keep on going. Yeah, I thought she was beautiful, what she was saying. I think all the artists that we've been talking to have really helped me fall in love with the arts again and realise quite how important they are. Um, I thought Manira was really fantastic. She said, what you have to say is valuable. And the, the arts teach you that. They teach you that, you know, your story matters, that it's of value. Um, and I love the fact that so much of her artistry is about helping people find those stories and tell them. And giving all of those people, everyone access to the arts as well. Like it's not just for people that have the money and the time and the, you know, geographical access to good art. It's for everybody. Anyway, that's another amazing conversation. Um, We're really, really grateful for Manira for giving us so much time and we've loved getting to know her and when we get back in the field we very much hope that Manira will be able to come back to us um, through the Amal programming and just as a friend at the festival anyway we've we've loved getting to know her yes and so who have we got up next week Paul next week we have a very different conversation uh one i'm really really looking forward to and that is with Natalia who's the creative director of Belarus Free Theatre all of our guests have been amazing, but I think, Catherine, would you, would I be right in saying that when we talked with Natalia from Belarus Free Theatre, that was just a jaw-dropping conversation that I don't think you or I have really recovered from that since. Yeah, it was incredible. Hard-hitting. What a woman, what a company, what a state Belarus is in. So if you want to keep in touch with us, please write in and tell us your thoughts on this episode. And you can do that using our email address, which is stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. And if you want to sign up to any general festival news about Greenbelt Festival so we can let you know about how things are going, you can sign up to our weekly dispatches email newsletter on our website. Out and about on socials, we are at Greenbelt on Twitter and at Greenbelt Festival on Instagram and Facebook. So please let us know what you're thinking on your platform of choice. Thank you to Daisy Ware Jarrett in the office for producing us and Paul Truman for helping us frame the episode. And to Josh and Jake on our volunteer recorded talks team who do all the polishing and make us sound half decent before we release this. They're wonderful. 